Welcome, friends! I'm your host, Adrian, and yes, you found us, Stamp Stories, a podcast about Canadian stamps and the stories behind them. Yeah! So if you love stamp collecting, Canadian history or both, this is the show for you. This is episode number 28, and today we'll be talking about a hero from the War of 1812 who is more than the face of a brand of chocolates, and the Stamps Canada Post created to celebrate her real achievements. More in just a moment. Hello friends, thanks for joining us. Today I'm so excited to share with you the story of Laura Secord, who to most of the public is the face of a chocolate company, even though it's just in name only and no other relation. However, the reasons the chocolates bear her name came from the story of a real Canadian heroine. So let's start there before we delve into the two stamps Canada Post created to honor her. On September 13, 1775, a year before the Revolutionary War, Thomas Ingersoll's wife, Elizabeth, gave birth to a baby girl named Laura. The Ingersoll family lived in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and her father fought alongside American patriots during the Revolutionary War that began the following year. In 1795, facing economic hardship, he successfully petitioned Governor John Simcoe of Upper Canada, which is present-day Ontario, for a land grant. By this time, Laura's mother Elizabeth Ingersoll had died and her father had remarried. With his ten children, Thomas Ingersoll moved his family north to Queenston, a small community near Niagara Falls that was settled by Loyalist refugees and immigrants from the United States who had fled to Canada after the American Revolution. As you can imagine, newcomers who had been loyal to America were not welcome, and so the Ignersalls eventually moved to York, which would later become the city of Toronto in 1834. Laura, however, stayed behind in Queenston, and in 1797 married a shopkeeper and loyalist James Secord. The couple would have five children by 1810, and up to that point, they had a relatively normal life. Eventually, however, the conflict in Europe, stemming from the Napoleonic Wars of the early parts of the 1800s, would spread into their area. There was a naval blockade by the British of France, which the Americans opposed. There was also impressment of sailors, where British Navy would seek out Britons living in America and press them into service of the Royal Navy. The United States believed that British deserters had a right to become American citizens, but Britain did not recognize a right for a British subject to relinquish his citizenship and become a citizen of another country. As well, the British just needed sailors for their war with Napoleon. And this all really came to a head with a incident with the crew of the Leopard, a British ship that pursued, attacked, and boarded the American frigate, the Chesapeake, looking for deserters from the Royal Navy. Four crew members were removed from the American vessel and were tried for desertion, one of whom was subsequently hanged. There was another issue. This involved Native Americans who lived in the Northwest Territory, which consisted of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin. The British supported those fighting the American expansion into these areas, even though the area had been ceded to the United States in the Treaty of Paris in 1783. Of course, both sides ignored the fact that the land was inhabited by various Native American people, though. Uh, wouldn't be the first time in history that happened either, of course. As you can imagine at the time, there was obviously lots of tension, but the United States was only a secondary concern to Britain so long as the war continued with France. However, that would change. 
James Madison became the U.S. president in 1809 and had to try a new strategy that would kind of pit the British against the French. And he offered to trade with whichever country would end their attacks against American shipping. So Napoleon offered to end French attacks on American shipping so long as the United States punished any countries that did not similarly end restrictions on trade. Madison would accept Napoleon's proposal in the hope that, that it would convince the British to finally end the policy of commercial warfare. But the British refused to change their policies, and the French reneged on their promise and continued to attack American shipping. With sanctions and other policies having failed, Madison determined that war with Britain was the only remaining option. Lots of American sentiment turned into an idea of a second revolutionary war, and this time with a different tactic. Many Americans, Madison included, believed that the United States could easily capture Canada, at which point the U.S. could use Canada as a bargaining chip for all the other disputes or simply retain control of it. So on June 1st, 1812, Madison asked Congress for a declaration of war, stating that the United States could no longer tolerate Britain's, quote, state of war against the United States, unquote. And so with war being declared against Canada, the Napoleonic Wars in some sense, came to the Secord's door on October 13, 1812. Laura's husband, James Secord, served in the 1st Lincoln Militia, and he fought valiantly. However, unfortunately, his commanding officer, Major General Sir Isaac Brock, was killed, and the Americans captured Queenston Heights, where they were living at the time. The wind was not fully assured, though, as reinforcements from the New York State Militia refused to cross the river into Canada. Unlike U.S. Army regulars, some state militiamen refused to fight outside the boundary of their own state. So when British and Canadian reinforcements did arrive, the American troops were driven back across the river. Now, after the fighting was over, Laura Secord went in search of her husband, who had reportedly been injured. She found him badly wounded with bullets lodged in his shoulder and knee. And with the help of a friendly officer, she brought James back to their house. When she arrived, Laura found that her home had been ransacked by the enemy and most everything valuable had been carted away. In fact, much of the entire village had been looted. So during the winter months that followed, Laura Secord devoted considerable energy to take care of her wounded husband. By the spring of 1813, neither side had a firm control of the Niagara Peninsula. However, the Americans controlled the strategically important Fort George, which is the entrance of the Niagara River. Also from time to time, U.S. soldiers demanded food and supplies from local residents, likely including the Secords too. In May 1813, Queenston was again the site of a battle, and the invading Americans decisively won this time. All the Canadian men over 18 were marched off as prisoners of war, but James was allowed to remain in his home due to his wounds. Also, after winning the second battle, they raided the town, turning the homes of British loyalists into their own personal hotels. The Secords, among many others, were forced to house and feed the American soldiers. In the Secords' case, it was three American officers who lodged in their house. Now, I must pause here because this is where the myth of Laura Secord is born. The facts and truth of what exactly happened is disputed in the record. However, it is pretty certain these two things happened. The first was that on June 21st, 1813, it was learned that the Americans intended to surprise the British outpost at Beaver Dams and capture Lieutenant James Fitzgibbon, the officer in charge. However, 
how this information was learned is not certain in the record, but most insist either that Laura or her husband overheard the news in the house. To me, the real important fact and where her reputation comes from is this second fact. Laura Secord decided to risk her life to get the message to Lieutenant James Fitzgibbon early the next morning. On June 22nd, Laura Secord, mother of five, traveled over 30 kilometers through fields, wooded areas, and swamps to warn British troops of an impending ambush. Finally, she got to the British and met Captain Dominic Ducharme and his small band of Aboriginal warriors. She would be taken immediately to a house in the present-day city of Thorold, which was being used as the local headquarters for British forces. Her information resulted in Fitzgibbon and his much-feared Aboriginal warrior allies ambushing and capturing over 500 American soldiers at the Battle of Beaver Dams on June 24th. Public acclaim for the stunning victory went to Fitzgibbon. Through local newspapers and word of mouth, Fitzgibbon became even more legendary. Not much credit was given to Laura Secord publicly at the time, probably to protect her and her family. However, the First Nation warriors were not given their due in public for their effort. Sure, they had given considerable recognition in the official military reports, but this was only seen by a few officers. So displeased with their treatment, they resigned and returned home to Lower Canada, which we now know as Quebec. As for the Americans, with the loss at Beaver Dams and other setbacks, the U.S. lost its initiative on the Niagara frontier, and by December, demoralized, they abandoned their positions. After the war in 1815, James Secord's health gradually improved, but he never fully recovered. James also received a small pension because of his war wounds, but with the family store destroyed during the war, they really struggled financially. Laura's heroism, however, was not forgotten by Fitzgibbon, who did write letters on Laura's behalf in 1820, 1827, and 1837, attesting to her bravery. The Secord luck did take a turn for the better when in 1828 James Secord was appointed registrar, then judge in 1833, of the Niagara Surrogate Court. In 1835, he became a collector of customs at Chippewa. His income, however, never reached their pre-war standards, and when James died in 1841, Laura was left without any major financial windfall. She would go on to run a school for children in her small home in Chippewa, which is now part of the city of Niagara Falls, Ontario. After James' death and in need of money, she began to speak more often of her wartime efforts with the hope of securing a small government pension. But even with the help of Fitzgibbon, Laura was ignored by the government. Gradually, however, her story of her adventure appeared in a few newspapers and books, albeit with some inaccuracies. Laura's luck would finally change in 1860 as the Prince of Wales, the eldest son of Queen Victoria, who would be later crowned King Edward VII, would be in the Niagara district and learned of Laura's heroism. After returning to England, he authorized a reward of £100 in gold, that was going to be given to her every year until her death, and this provided her with much-needed support and recognition of her heroism until her death in 1868 at age 93. 
as you will notice, her death was one year after Canada became a nation in 1867, but that didn't stop her legend from growing about how she helped Canada become a nation. Her story also attracted particular attention in the late 1800s during the women's suffrage movement. The story of her bravery would be expanded by numerous retellings, legends, songs, stories, and televised documentaries. Some of the things that you some of the things you may have ever seen or heard was things such as was she accompanied by a cow to distract you as soldiers? Was her entire trip made at night? Did she walk barefoot? Did she give an American sentry a small bouquet of violets? Was she granted passage after asking to visit her ill brother? There are so many different stories, but regardless of these unproven tales, her status as a Canadian heroine is not really disputed. Although I do know, however, there are some people who dispute her story. The fact that she did what she did, to me, is still heroic. I'll leave that up to you to do your own research and decide, but in my view, she's still a hero. And that's kind of where we end the story of the real Laura Secord. And so now we're going to fast forward 100 years, and we're going to have a chocolatier who's going to enter the story. So in 1913, a 28-year-old entrepreneur named Frank P. O'Connor founded a candy store. It was the centenary of Laura Secord's exploits and surely something well-known by then. And as you can imagine, Frank named his store after Laura Secord. But there was no involvement from the Laura Secord family. As he would say at the time when he chose to name his business after Laura, he did so because she was a symbol of courage, devotion, and loyalty. This small store was located at 354 Young Street in Toronto, Ontario, where he would sell handmade chocolates, and it would become very popular very quickly. And within a couple of years, he had a couple more stores in the Toronto area. Frank also had big ambitions across the border as well. And Laura Secord probably wouldn't have been a brand that worked in the Americas, so in 1919, he launched the Fanny Farmer Candy Company in Rochester, New York. Like Laura Secord, Fanny Farmer was named in honor of someone without any connection to the candy company. The real Fanny Farmer was a culinary expert who had died just four years earlier. Her recipes were not being used by the company, just her name. Well, kind of. Her name in the company name would have the spelling slightly changed by ending it with a Y instead of an IE. However, as a marketing tactic, the name suggested the high standards of quality and this tactic would also prove to be a big success for Frank O'Connor. So, Candy would make O'Connor a millionaire. Beginning in March 1928, he purchased 600 acres of land along Victoria Park Avenue, then known as the northern extension of Dawes Road, north of present-day Lawrence Avenue to build Maryvale. O'Connor also used his money to become one of Toronto's most generous philanthropists, and he was a devout Catholic, so he funded many educational institutions tied to his faith. Politically, O'Connor was also involved in the Provincial Liberal Party, and he helped get Mitch Hepburn elected as Premier in 1934. The reward for his work was an appointment in 1935 to the Senate of Canada by then-Liberal Prime Minister Mackenzie King. However, due to illness a couple of years later, O'Connor withdrew from the operations of Laura Secord and turned its presidency over to his brother-in-law. Frank O'Connor would die of illness at Maryvale on August 21st, 1939, but this was not the end for the company. It would continue on and grow. There would also be subsequent revamps of the corporate logo. You know, originally it, it was using the only known photo of, but over time, the depictions of Laura Secord moved further away from historical reality, matching instead the design trends of the time. 
By 1950, there were as many as 96 Laura Secord shops in Ontario and Quebec, and Laura Secord chocolate was a well-established brand across both provinces. And so with that popularity, the company became a valuable asset. In the late 1960s, ownership of Laura Secord changed owners on several occasions. However, as of February 2010, Laura Secord is now owned by two Quebec businessmen, Jean and Jacques Leclerc. The Leclerc brothers belong to a family with over a century of experience in the food processing industry, and the Laura Secord company now has over 100 stores across the country. Today, as ever, Laura Secord is Canada's largest and best-known chocolatier with over 400 products. Now that we've got my sweet tooth going, and before I need to run out and get some chocolates, let's move on to the stamps. So the first stamp to depict Laura Secord was issued on September 8, 1992. It was a 42 cent stamp and the third issue in the Canadian Folklore series. The series focused on Canadian heroes whose feats have taken on legendary proportions. Four million stamps were printed. The stamp was designed by Ralph Tibbles based on illustrations by Deborah Drew Brook, who based them on illustrations by Alan Cormack. The truth is the only existing known photo of Laura Secord is from 1865, so truthfully anything is really a bit from imagination. So let's look a little bit at the design. The assigned Scott catalog number is 1434. The stamp depicts Laura as a redhead wearing a heavy dress plus a shawl and a bonnet. She's lifting her dress in what seems urgent movement while looking over her shoulder. The background depicts a dark and uncertain wooded area. And in the lower corner of the stamp are some aboriginals silhouetted against a nearby campfire who would guide Laura the rest of the way to tell Fitzgibbon of the impending ambush. The next time we see Laura on a stamp is on June 20th, 2013, on the 200th anniversary of Laura's exploits. Actually, it was a pair of stamps honoring the daring exploits of two legendary heroes from the War of 1812, Laura Secourt and Charles de Salaberry. The stamp pair was the second in a series commemorating the War of 1812. The year prior, in 2012, they released a stamp honoring Major General Sir Isaac Brock and War Chief Tecumseh, we touched on the Major General and his bravery at Queenston Heights, the same battle in which James Secord, Laura's husband, got injured severely. Now, heading back to the pair of stamps from 2013, we've already learned the story of Laura who braved the 30-kilometer walk through the Canadian wilderness to warn a British outpost of an impending American attack. Now, the other stamp is the DeSalaberry stamp, and I figured because it's part of the release and connected to the Laura Secord stamp, it made sense to at least give uh, the brief reason why he's being honored. And he essentially was honored for his strategy and his resourcefulness in repelling an American invasion which aimed at capturing Montreal. And certainly this will be a subject for a future episode, but we're going to move now to looking directly at the stamp. So the two permanent rate War of 1812 stamps, as mentioned, were issued Sutena with 800,000 stamps printed. They were printed by the Canadian Banknote Company on Tullis Russell paper using lithography in five colors with general three-side tagging. The official first day cover was cancelled with a June 20th date in Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario, and the stamps were also available in panes of 16. Now let's look a little closer at the stamp design. Considering it was released as a pair, 
we really need to look at it in that way. The backgrounds of the two stamps were merged at the perforations. The difference in each stamp's background pointed at details of each story. The forest in the Seacord stamp is green of summer, while the landscape behind DeSalaberry is the gold of autumn. The fallen trees seen beside DeSalaberry hint at the useful barricades he had constructed, and on the Laura Seacord stamp we see a beaver dam which references the destination of her pivotal journey. I want to now look closer at the Laura Secord stamp. The assigned Scott catalog number is 2651. The stamp design was led by Montreal artist and stamp designer Susan Scott, who wanted to capture as much historical accuracy as possible. Despite stamps, a coin, book covers, historic paintings, and portraits on boxes of Laura Secord chocolates, which have featured her at various ages, as I mentioned, the only known photograph of Laura was taken in the 1860s, shortly before she turned 90. So what did Susan do? She did a lot of research. That's what she did. And that included viewing the Queenston Heights statue, which had a depiction of Laura on the plaque. She also had discussions with 19th century historians about the type of clothing worn at the time. However, as Susan Scott told Ottawa citizen reporter Randy Boswell at the time, what made it all come together was a chance meeting with a Montreal museum worker who became the adopted inspiration for the stamp. Now, we'll never know the model's name due to Canada Post's privacy rules, but the mystery Montreal woman's face, according to Susan, bore similar features that she found in photographs of Secord's daughters at an age similar to their mother's in the early 1800s. As Scott was quoted saying about the design, quote, I consciously tried to avoid the sentimental look of the earlier stamp in devising the latest postal tribute to Secord, end quote. In my view, Susan Scott has succeeded, and of the two Laura Secord stamps, this one is my favorite. Whichever you choose, though, you're adding a great stamp to your collection of a great Canadian. So that's it for the 28th episode. Thank you so much for spending time with me and sharing this show with your friends. We also appreciate you rating the show on your favorite app. Taking the time to do so helps people find our show. And also don't forget, if you're looking for more info about the show, make sure to check us out at stampstories.ca. Also on our website, you'll be able to find the stamps mentioned in this episode and other cool historical material by clicking on the notes tab on our website or by visiting the link we've added to the description of this podcast. And don't forget, if you have any podcast feedback, ideas for guests, cool stories or more, we'd love to hear it too. You can email us over at feedback at stampstories.ca. Finally, if you're on Instagram or Twitter, follow us at our handle, stampstoriesca, all one word. It's the best place besides our website to get updates about this podcast. Once again, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon for our next episode. Happy collecting!